As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This episode of Creep Street Podcast is brought to you by Martini Coffee Roasters. Martini Coffee Roasters is not a martini-flavored coffee. In fact, it is a family-owned and operated company run by the Martini family. And while I'm sure they enjoy a good cocktail, they are all about that high-quality, smooth, flavorful coffee. Unlike many other roasters, Martini Coffee Roasters roast manually using a traditional method of roasting, most relying on sight and sound to ensure the best results, okay? This is quality, people. This is artisanal. This is handmade. This is what you're wanting. And, and not only that, but they also sell green coffee beans for those home roasters out there. So please support small businesses and check out Martini Coffee Roasters at martinicoffee.com. Once again, check out Martini Coffee Roasters at martinicoffee.com. You've taken a wrong turn down Creep Street. Citizens of the Milky Way, this is Maureen Bogey. And this is Dylan Hackworth. And you're not going to believe this, but guess what? You are listening to the Creep Street Podcast. Oh my God, that's Ooh. right. You have found yourself in a great place. You sure have. What a delight. Uh, we've got a great, great spooky show for you today. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous. This one's freaky. It's It's horrifying. And it's unsolved. Oh, my God. Well, you know what's going to make you feel better? If you like us and follow us on social media, yes. all that jazz, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Creep Street Podcast, Twitter at Creep Street Pod. And on Facebook, we also have a smaller group called Citizens of the Milky Way. It's just a group where uh, the two of us and uh, everyone in the group, all the this whole squad can post memes, articles, stories, questions, just chat. It's a good time in there. Hell yeah. uh, if you're interested in that, just head out, check out uh, Citizens of the Milky Way. We will let you in there. We have a lovely Patreon with lots of great bonus content if you That's are right. interested. Now, Dylan, speaking of Patreon, will you please list off our top tier Patreon donors? Oh, yes. I love doing it every week, baby. Of course, the dream. James Watkins, the Finnish face via Olympist, the madman Marcus Hall, the tenacious Teresa Hackworth, the heartbreak kid Chris Hackworth, the oh-so-suave Sean Richardson, the British bonebreaker Bex Martin, the notorious Nicholas Barker, the terrifying Taylor Lashmet, the Count of Cool Cameron Corliss, the Archduke of Attitude Adam Archer, the sinister Sam Kiker, and the Nightmare of New Zealand, 
Noeline Vivilli. Wow, wow, wow. What a impressive group of oh, names. Yes. Incredible. Ooh. If you would like to be like them, feel free to check out patreon.com slash creepstreetpodcast. There we have multiple different tiers that you can subscribe to to get some bonus content, including full bonus episodes and some other great goodies along the way. That's right. We also wanted to say thank you for all of the well wishes for our one year yes. podcast anniversary last thank week. You all. We got a lot of messages talking about people. We kind of, I think, rekindled some memories of yes. the Hat Man for some people. We are collecting those stories at any time. Anytime. And we'll drop a special listener studio. You know, we might drop it on a Tuesday or something. But exactly. We'll, we'll keep compiling those listener stories. So if you feel like you have an experience with the Hat Man or Shadow People, or anything for that matter, any sort of paranormal, spooky, scary, or just also spooky, scary, but real, like true right. crime or whatever, whatever you have, we'll take it. Feel free to DM us on social media or email us at creepstreetpodcast at gmail.com. That's right. Dylan, I'm nervous. Oh, believe me, I am too. This is spooky. It's gonna, it's, uh, I'm a little, this is, this is, Turn a light on, guys. This is one of the freakiest unsolved murders I've ever read about. Yeah. And it's going to piss you off a little bit, too, because mm-hmm. there's some shady shit that goes on. As there usually is. Citizens of the Milky Way, today's episode is The Horror in Cabin 28. Now, just l- real quick, let me throw down the names of my sources. First was a book called Murder Most Vile, Volume 27, 18 Shogging True Crime Murder Cases by Robert Keller. Mysterious Murders at the Cabin of Hell by Brent Swanser at Mysterious Universe. And Five Things to Know About the Keddy Cabin Murderers and the New Hunt for the Killers by Jeff Truesdell at People.com. There you go. So our story takes place in April of 1981 in the small, quiet town of Keddy California. It was a small resort town, and I think it was specifically called the Ketty Resort. Mm, okay. And at one time, this small town was thriving. It's this community of gorgeous log cabins, it was, this community of gorgeous log cabins that lined the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains in Northern California. It was a tourist destination. And likewise, the town was an important stop along the railroad that ran from Salt Lake City, Utah to Oakland, California. Oh, damn. But by the year 1981, when our story takes place, the source says Ketty had kind of fallen on hard times. Right. People aren't, don't get me wrong, trains are important to this day. But do they have the same bravado the same as they cachet. did? You know what I mean? It's not. It's just not the same. Yeah. We're like, there's a lot of trains now. I guess the railroad by then was gone. Oh, so well, there you go. tourism took a huge hit. And the wood cabins that were once rented out to tourists had become sort of like a lower income housing for for the residents there. Oh, okay. That's actually a good idea. That's a very good idea. Now, when our story picks up, the source describes Ketty as a very quiet, humble town. Everyone knew each other and they were all very friendly. The town's sheriff, his name was Doug Thomas. And the source says the worst that this town really had to deal with was just the occasional rowdy teen. Oh, okay. So very quiet town, low cost of living, and the quiet and affordability was exactly what Glenna Sue Sharp was looking for. Sue was a single mother of five children. 
and had recently separated from her husband. And they came to California, all the way to Connecticut. Oh, oh wow, so they were from Connecticut. Damn, that's a long way. They're starting a new chapter. At first, they lived temporarily with her brother in a nearby town, and then they finally rented out Cabin 28. She went there, Sue, along with her five children, Johnny, age 15, Sheila, age 14, Tina, age 12, Ricky, age 10, and Greg, who was five years old. So this family would need to save every penny, which was why Ketty was kind of the perfect place for them. Right. Quiet, affordable. Their new home wasn't perfect, but it would make do for now. Cabin 28. Exactly. I mean, damn, a single mom with five kids? I know. Damn, that's intense. Sue was just happy to have a place over their head, like a roof over their heads, being able to feed her kids. And the source says that Sue's biggest problem at that time was that her oldest son, Johnny, had begun hanging out with a local mischief maker. Oh. A 17-year-old named Dana Wingate. Now, it doesn't. the source, by the way, it doesn't say what they mean by troublemaker. It, 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 They're it, teens, you know? Yeah. It could range anywhere from, you know, actual trouble to just tomfoolery. Exactly. Sue, it says, mostly kept to herself, but was certainly not reclusive. Her best friend at that time would have been a woman named Marilyn Smart, who lived in Cabin 26. Marilyn lived there with her husband, Marty, and their two sons. And in fact, how Sue and Marilyn's friendship began was that Marilyn's son, Justin, befriended Sue's son, Ricky. So that was kind of how that friendship began. Classic. But soon, Sue and Marilyn became very close. You see, Sue was coming out of an abusive marriage. And the source says right away, she was able to see in Marilyn the signs of abuse before, before Marilyn had even told her about it. Oh, wow. Not only did she notice bruises on Marilyn, but the very demeanor, her very demeanor just seemed beaten down. Oh, God, that's so sad. She would sometimes just start crying, things like that. And as their friendship, as they grew closer, Marilyn opened up about her abusive relationship with Marty. And she'd even said she would have been considering leaving him. Now, the source says Sue was a shoulder to cry on, and that while she never directly told Marilyn to leave Marty, she did say that divorcing her husband in Connecticut had been the greatest decision she'd ever made. Right, yeah. So think about the fact that Sue moved herself and her children all the way from Connecticut to California. That means she wanted far away from whoever this fucker was. I mean, that is a huge move. Yes. With five kids. I mean, damn, she really wanted to get away from this fucker. Clearly. Absolutely. So now it's the evening of Saturday, April 11th, 1981. Marilyn's son, Justin, had gone over to cabin 28, Sue's cabin, to spend the night there with uh, Ricky, Sue's son. This was a perfect night to have company because they had some extra space that night. Sue's daughter, Sheila, was staying over at a friend's house in the area, another cabin. Mm -hmm. And her son, Johnny, was out hanging out with Dana Wingate in the nearby town of Quincy. And the source says that Sue was always on edge when Johnny was out hanging out with Dana. It doesn't say why... Like we said, it doesn't get into why, it, but... Just, you know, cons- general concern. I understand that. It's like, is this kid a criminal or is it just a 17-year-old kid? Like, Yeah, I would like to know more info about that, but I guess it doesn't, as we'll see, it's it's right. doesn't really matter. Also, the source never says if she actually talked to Johnny about hanging out with Dana. Like, it never mentions if she said, like, hey, you can't hang out with him, and he did anyway. Yeah. You know, you would think if you didn't want your 15-year-old hanging out with someone, just say, don't hang out with him. So I'm guessing it was more of just troublemake, not like something... Right, just kind of thinking this kid might be a bad influence, you know, just nothing, but not necessarily anything drastic. Maybe this was the teen that the sheriff was talking about. Right, exactly. And and, and and by the way, Johnny wasn't going to be staying out all night. He was just hanging out with a friend. Right. So this is just catching us up to 
where we are. My thought was maybe because there was a recent divorce, maybe she didn't want to alienate Johnny by saying, hey, you can't hang out with this friend that you just made. You know what I mean? Maybe because right. maybe they were having a hard time with the divorce. You know, who knows what yeah, the reason just, is why we, someone doesn't confront. Yeah, who knows? You know, a million reasons why. So just to recap where everyone is, Sheila is gone hanging out with a friend, staying with a friend that night, and Johnny's out hanging out with Dana, but is planning to come home. So inside cabin 28 on the evening of Saturday, April 11th, it was Sue Sharp, mm -hmm. her daughter Tina, her son Ricky and his friend Justin, and the youngest Greg. So now it's 7 a.m., the morning of April 12th, 1981. Sheila Sharp was just getting back home to cabin 28 after staying the night at her friend's house. She walks up the path to the door, and as she walks up to the door, she's surprised to see that the lights were on in the living room. It was early on a Sunday morning, so she figured everyone would still be sleeping. Right. Sheila opens the door, and there before her was her mother, lying on the floor. Lying over her was a yellow blanket completely soaked through with blood. Oh, Sheila. Poor Sheila. The source says that in that moment, Sheila actually wasn't able to fully register what she was seeing. She was in shock. Oh, of course. And she just kind of stood there, and she looks over, and near where her mother was lay her brother Johnny and his friend Dana Wingate. Their feet had been bound together with electrical cables <gasps> and tape. Not only were they covered in blood, but the blood had been splattered everywhere on the walls, the ceiling, the oh. furniture. And nearby the bodies lay a bent butcher's knife covered in blood. Bent? Bent. And we'll get more into the crime scene because there's specifics we're going to get into. Oh, God. The reality of what had happened sinks in. Sheila turns and runs screaming out of cabin 28. And it says she did not stop screaming the entire time as she ran back to her friend's house. Oh, my God. She just ran screaming in the morning air, just oh, like in this, God. you know, all the way back to her friend's house. Of course, she gets there. They call the police. I mean, horrible. Horrible. That is an absolute nightmare. Absolutely. An actual, actual nightmare. So immediately, police are called in. Uh, Sheriff Doug Thomas, the one I mentioned earlier. DT. And a number of officers from the Plumas County Sheriff's Department were there with the first to arrive at the scene. Now, many believe that the reason these murders are unsolved to this day is due largely to mistakes made during this investigation. Of course. Jesus. Oh, God. As I'm sure many have noticed, before DNA evidence was really understood, crime scene... And I'm not trying to say that every single crime investigation or crime scene was bungled before the 90s or whatever. The idea and the better understanding of genetics really helped crime scenes be investigated with better care. And in the case of, of Cabin 28, we're going to find out later that not all of these mistakes may have been unintentional. Oh, God. I was trying to give them the benefit of the fucking doubt. Gosh darn it. But apparently they started making mistakes almost immediately. First of all, they failed to secure the crime scene. They left boot prints in the victim's blood puddles. You're actually kidding. And they handled evidence without gloves. What? I mean, this is the shit that makes my blood boil. It's not hard. Yeah. How hard is it to not step on blood? No. It's so easy. You just don't. Right. You know, I don't step on blood all the time. And the source says that while this department had never seen a crime like this before, as I said, there might have been other reasons to why mistakes were made. Oh, woof. The attack on the family was absolutely barbaric. Not only were they murdered, 
the crime scenes seemed to indicate that they had been tortured as well. Yeah. Sue Sharp had been bound with wire and electrical tape and stabbed multiple times with a butcher knife that lay nearby. She had been stabbed with such great force that the butcher's knife had been bent at a 25 degree angle. Furthermore, and this is, some of the sources defer on this, I don't know if this is 100%. At the end, we're gonna go back through, and I'm gonna talk about some of the discrepancies in one of the sources, but. Okay. Furthermore, Sue had been stripped naked from the waist down. Her underwear had been used to gag her and was bound by electrical tape. This shit like makes me hope that hell is real. You know what I mean? There was also signs of defensive injuries, meaning there was a struggle and she fought back. Pop off Sue, pop off Sue! Both Johnny and Dana had been stabbed multiple times in an almost animalistic type fashion. Johnny's throat had been slashed, so it Sue's, her throat had been slashed as well. And it appeared Dana had been bludgeoned. His head had been caved in. Deep circular wounds on the skull seemed to indicate he was beaten with a hammer. Sue's, like I said, her throat had been cut, and also she had wounds around her head that the source se- said seemed to have come from the butt of a pellet BB gun. What? Which was weird. That's so, how do they know it was a butt from a BB gun and not just a gun? I don't, well, it was a specific like 88 Daisy something. Oh, they something. could just like tell yeah. by the, sh- whatever, yeah. I'm guessing oh, it was smaller weird. than a, right. Yeah. It also seemed like the torture and murder had happened in the living room, specifically. The phone was knocked off the hook, and all the victims had blood on their feet and had tracked it around all over, seeming to indicate there was a struggle in yeah. stumbling around. It's not like they were sleeping and they this person snuck in. I'm sure this person did sneak exactly. in, but it was a fight. Something strange to note, there was no sign of forced entry other than some unidentified fingerprints on the handrail at the back side of the house. They believe the killers worked with gloves on and made an effort to conceal their identity. Mm. Patrol Commander Rod DeCrone had this to say about the crime scene. They stabbed and pounded on everything in visible sight. The walls, the people, furniture, everything. There was blood sprayed absolutely everywhere. You knew right away we were involved with a psychopath. Insane. Uh, yeah, I mean, this sounds like an animal. And I, I don't mean like a wild animal right. that like just snuck in and, you know, somehow did this. It just seems like this, the, whoever committed this crime was like in a an frenzy. animal. Like right. in it was a, a fucking it, blind, blind rage. Right. Exactly. Or so, You know, I, that's crazy. So these small town officers, like we said, not used to a crime scene like this. And apparently some of them were like borderline, like about to run out and throw up. Like oh, they of were, course. You know, they were kind of overcome with it. Sheila, in her horror had run out before looking anywhere else in the house. And you certainly can't blame her. Oh, no. But remember, also staying in cabin 28 that night was Ricky, Tina, Greg, and Ricky's friend, Justin. Yes. Everyone was fearing the worst. The police made their way from room to room, bracing for horror with every door they opened, you know, expecting to see another brutal crime scene. Yeah, and with, oh, God, and these kids are little, These are kids. It's like Ricky was 10, Tina 12. 12, I think, and just, I'm assuming, I know I have his name, date, his age somewhere, but I'm assuming around the same age as Ricky, and then Greg was five. Yeah, oh God. They came to a door at the rear bedroom, and they opened it. Inside, they found Ricky, Greg, and Justin, and thank God, they were completely unharmed. Oh, thank God. Unfortunately, though, Tina was nowhere to be found. Here, the sheriff's department made another mistake. The source says they were slow to launch a missing persons report. And the source even says, quote, they were cursory at best in their efforts. 
It just, it makes me so furious. Ooh, you're going to get more furious later on, believe me. I'm an idiot who watches TV. I'm just a moron. I'm, I'm someone who has no... What I'm trying to say is, I would know what to do. I would be better at this than these fucking police. They got to know better, and this has got to be some kind of cover-up or something. Right. I mean, how does that not the first thing you fucking do? So Sheriff okay. Thomas knew right away his department was not equipped to handle a case like this. They were out of their league. So he put in a call to the California Department of Justice and asked that they send help from the Criminal Identification and Investigative Branch. Okay, good. Despite three murders and Tina missing, they did have three boys alive and well. And this was a kind of like a relief. Well, one, because they, they were alive, of right, course, right. but also they figured, hey, we got three eyewitnesses. Even if they didn't see it explicitly, they surely, you know. Heard it. Exactly. Yeah. But this is where things get weird. And obviously, all this is weird, but this is where things go from just horrifying to also, what? All three boys said they had slept through whatever happened. You're well, kidding. Well, at first, all three boys did. Ricky and Greg, the two brothers, their story never changed. Justin, the friend of Ricky, his story did change a few times. Oh, no. At first, he said he slept through the ordeal, like the other two said. But later, he said that he had possibly gotten a look at the killer slash killers, but would later change it again to say it was just a dream. Hmm. And we're going to get more into later, because later they put him under hypnosis. Oh, okay. And just That's... to recap, Justin was a friend of Ricky's, who was the son of Marilyn, who was in the abusive relationship with Marty. Marty, yeah. So... This kid's dad is Marty. Is a piece of shit. And that's crazy that the the kids said that they were all asleep. It kind of reminds me of Amityville a little bit, where right. there's this insane, loud, tragic crime. Clearly, there was probably screaming, shouting, commotion. Uh, yeah, things you, you know breaking. I mean? There's I mean, blood everywhere, so it's not like they were doing this quietly and with precision. And the source says it's possible that all three boys did see something, and just given their age and whatnot, it was like almost like a protective mechanism, like their brains right. just set, they like, didn't even weren't even aware that they were doing that. But exactly, right. you well, and you know, also they see this horrifying, shocking thing, and maybe their brains just block. Literally you know, cannot knows? compute. Right. So the cabins in Ketty were not spaced far apart. The crime... Yeah, you'd think maybe even neighbors. Yeah. The crime scene, as we said, indicated that there had been an incredible struggle. So we can assume lots of screaming, shouting, clamoring. Strangely enough, though, no neighbors reported hearing anything out of the ordinary. Just like Amityville. One couple said that at about 1.15 a.m., they did hear something that sounded like screeching or screaming, but they thought it was probably just an owl because I guess they were, you know, they're in the woods. Oh yeah, yeah. They thought maybe it was an owl screeching. So if so, they did and it could have been. They could have not heard. Who know? Who knows what they heard? Right. You can't. You can't be mad at those people. No, if, no, even no. if they heard screaming. If like if you live in a town where nothing like this happens, you're used to hearing. Of course, you're gonna go. Oh, that was weird. And I'm thinking that maybe that was an owl or something because if they could only hear enough screaming or screeching that they could think it was just an owl. Yes. Then it clearly wasn't, they weren't hearing the whole commotion of what was going on in there. Exactly. So, yeah, I, that's, it's interesting that they heard something, but at the very least they didn't hear all of what was happening. 
just because nothing was heard doesn't mean there wasn't anything seen. Oh, true, true. Marilyn and Marty Smart had a guest staying with them at this time, a friend of Marty's named Bo Boobedi, B-O-U-B-E-D-E. So I'm just going to say Boobedi, but I'm going to call him Bo from Oh, here. yeah, I love that. I think Bo was like a nickname. I think his, he had a different first name, but I'll just call him Bo for this. Beauregard, maybe? Yeah. Now, a witness reported that the three of them, Marilyn, Marty, and Bo, had stopped by Sue Sharp's door at about 9 p.m. on the night of the murder, and when the three of them were brought in for questioning, they confirmed, yes, they had stopped by Cabin 28 that night. They were headed to a local bar for drinks, and they stopped to ask Sue if she wanted to join. Sue said thanks, but she was in for the night with the kids that were staying over, so they went on their way. Yeah. Now, this was the story Marty and Bo gave, but Marilyn gave a little bit more info. Okay, thank you, Marilyn. Marilyn told police that almost as soon as they got to the bar, Marty, being the asshole he is, got into an argument with the bar owner over the music being played. Stop What it. a douchebag. Get out of here. Go what home. What a douchebag. Go home and listen to your fucking records of whoever the hell. Get, then I hate it when people do that. It's what like, a if piece you don't like, then shit. go home. So the three of them left the bar, and they go back to the cabin, 26, where they live. Now, Marty and Bo, Marilyn said, would go back out again. But Marilyn chose to stay at home and watch TV and just get some sleep. Mm-hmm. She didn't see Marty or Bo again until the next morning. Oh, that's, that's bad. But here's the most important thing. Marilyn also told police that Marty had a grudge against Sue, believing that she was pushing Marilyn to get a divorce. Oh, fuck this now, shit. Now, here's piss off mode. Here's where you're going to start to get pissed off. Now, you'd think a revelation like that would have made him suspect number one, right? Yes. Whether he did it or not, you would think that little revelation, and he's already a piece of shit. And he's one of the only people that could come by. Also, I kind of get the feeling like if there was no forced entry, that doesn't make me think that he was really careful. That makes me think that they knew him. Right. They knew They knew right. the assailant and they let him in. Even if they didn't like him, they're thinking, okay, what do you need? Right. And plus, his remember, his son, son is staying is there. there. Yeah. That, that's right away. I'm like, that doesn't make... Yeah. No. I think that they knew the assailant. So there's a few theories. This may have been, and we'll get deeper into them later, but apparently Marty Smart and Sheriff Doug Thomas were very close pals. You just hate to hear it. You just hate to hear it. We're going to come back to that because that's kind of the crux of this whole thing. Oh, my God. So now back to the crime scene. The backup that Sheriff Thomas had requested from the state's criminal identification and investigation department had arrived. Side note, from now on, I'm just going to call that the CII, criminal identification investigation. I'm just going to call it CII for short. Love it. Now, you'd think that all things would suddenly go more smoothly now that the CII was on the case. But in fact, they made even worse mistakes. For example, Marty's friend Bo told them he was a retired police officer. And the source says they took his story then to be gospel. I hate that shit. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. They didn't question it one bit. Apparently, he wasn't a former cop. That was a lie. In fact, Bo was an ex-convict. I could just scream and throw myself out the window, and I might. Just a side note here, let's go over the discrepancies in Bo's story that the source mentions. Okay. At first, Bo said he knew which cabin the murders had happened in. Okay, I'm screaming and jumping out a window. Later, he said that he didn't. Gee. He also stated that he had never met Sue Sharp, despite the fact that they had knocked on her door and asked her to come out for drinks. 
He also said that he and Marty left the bar around midnight, unlike what they initially said, which was between 9.30 and 10, remember? Because they got in a fight with the guy at the bar owner. He also told a lie that didn't even make sense. This is, this one's weird. He said that Marilyn was his niece. They weren't related at all. Why did they, uh, okay, okay. I'm you, I'm just gonna be in a fit. He also said that he had been in Ketty for a month when actually he'd only been there for 12 days. And he also said that Marilyn was awake when him and Marty got back home, but Marilyn said she was already asleep by then. I hate this guy. It's, yeah, these two, Marty and Bo, sound like pieces of shit. Whether they were responsible, which they probably were, but even if they weren't, they sound like they're pieces of shit regardless. Yeah, just fuck this guy. I just. Likewise, the interrogation of Marty Smart was absolutely fucking stupid. The source says that at one point, Marty even said that his son Justin might have seen something, quote, without me detecting him. Stop Seeming it. to indicate that Marty was in the house at the time of the murders. What? However, investigators decided not to follow up on that little nugget. I mean, don't they, these people have like any pride in their work? They also ignored it when he said that his hammer had gone missing recently, days before the murders. I- For whatever reason, both the local police and CII investigators let all that shit slide. Bo was allowed to return back home to Reno, Nevada, where he was undergoing treatment at the local VA hospital there, being treated for post-traumatic stress disorder. Interesting. Okay. The case eventually was closed when everything went cold. Hilarious that they consider that to be going cold. It was opened again in 1984 when a skull was found several miles away from Ketty in a town called Feather Falls. There was also like a pair of jeans, a blanket. And one of the sources says that an anonymous quote, this was from the source I think is a little shaky. None Mm. of the other sources mentioned this. But it says that an anonymous call came in saying that yes, those belong to Tina Sharp, the missing girl. DNA test would confirm it was Tina. So a few years later, it was confirmed this was, it was a quadruple homicide, not just triple. Fuck, but they took Tina to a second location, either alive or dead. Right. So let's talk about this piece of shit, Marty Smart. Earlier, we said he was close pals with Sheriff Doug Thomas. Now, Marilyn and Marty would separate and divorce not long after the murders. Good. Get out of there. Thank God. If there's one good thing that happened from this. During that time, Marty went and stayed long term as a guest at Sheriff Thomas's house. Uh, Dylan, I, I literally, my, I'm sweating. I'm, I'm so angry. I'm sweating. Doug Thomas soon left law enforcement altogether, becoming an insurance salesman. Well, I think that that was actually probably a good thing. I think that was probably the vibe. A big bombshell came when Marty died of cancer in 2000. A therapist that had been treating Marty claimed that he had confessed to the murder of Sue Sharp. Yeah. He said he did it because she was interfering with his marriage. Yeah. However, he did not confess to the murder of the three kids, though. So did Bo do that? But we don't know. Bo died of, of natural causes in 1988 in Chicago, Illinois, where he was rumored to have ties to organized crime. Of course he did, baby Chicago. Also, he died of it said, natural causes? It just says he, and then the other sources just said he died. I, I don't know. Yeah. Weird. Okay. He but, was older, I believe, than, oh, than, oh, than okay. because like post-traumatic, I, I don't know if he was a, was like he a veteran a or something. Vet or was I, he like I'm not a sure. Korea, World War II vet. I, I'm not sure. But he was a bit older, I think, anyway. Okay. So I so that's interesting. But also that is kind of the idea that maybe Marty confessed to the murder right. of Sue and he didn't confess 
confess to the murder of the kids. That is actually somewhat common when, that doesn't mean that he, he did not kill the kid. That's actually kind of common sometimes, even these murderers, they either don't want to or can't take responsibility for the death of a child, especially multiple exactly. children. So they will say like, no, no, I, I did kill someone. And so they'll confess to killing the adult or whatever, but right. they won't mention the children. Right. Is a way to kind of relieve their conscience without ever actually admitting to the to killing kids. It's like that Chris Watts douchebag. It is like Chris Watts. So to this day, what happened in Cabin 28 is unsolved. Oh my God. And sadly, after the murders, many of the few people that did live in Keddie left. Oh. Only a few people still live in the area and Cabin 28 was bulldozed in 2004. So it's oh. not there anymore. Okay. The case was open again, though, oh. in, in 2013 by the new sheriff in that area named Greg Hagwood. Thank you, Greg. Come on. He knew the Sharp family personally when he was a boy. He, like, went to school with some of the kids, oh. and he believed the case had been fucked up, probably purposely. Yeah, this is what, when it becomes an HBO premium uh, yeah. limited series, which I'm into. Okay. After reopening the case, I guess a letter was discovered that was supposedly written from Marty to Marilyn, and it read this. I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through? Great. What else do you want? Can I say something? Well, and just to say, I, I think I read in People, my source in People, that Marilyn has said she didn't ever receive a letter, or does, at least doesn't recall receiving a letter like that. Right. So maybe it was something he wrote and didn't get, who, who knows? Why would he think that, I, I, I could absolutely see him maybe writing that letter and never sending it or something like that. Right. It's just wild. It's like, why do you think killing this family would make her stay? Right. Even if she never found out that it was you or whatever, she's clearly going to be like, you're a suspect, in, at least in her mind. Right. Like, that. it's insane. It's insane. These people do not function on right. the same level as everyone else. And so if you are in a relationship like this, get out. Because they don't even live on our realm, exactly. I feel like. It's, like, it's a different world with different rules. Right. And just get the fuck out. So in 2016... Sheila Sharp. So she was the daughter. She was 14 at the time. Yes. Oh, and she was the one that, that, that discovered found them. The yeah. Scene. yeah. In 2016, Sheila Sharp said that apparently Marty and Bo were told by police to, quote, get out of town. Yep. Believe that. 100%. In the wake of the murders. Likewise, later, Justin, the boy who said he might have saw something that might have been a dream. Marty's son. Yes. Now, Justin, later, he was questioned while under hypnosis. Interesting. And while under hypnosis, he said that Ricky and Greg stayed asleep and that he got up to investigate a noise. And he said that's when he saw Sue Sharp in an argument with two men. Oh. One was had a mustache. The other uh, both had glasses. Like he gave like a, you know, kind of a description. And he said one of them was holding a hammer. <gasps> he said that Dana and Johnny entered the room. Yeah. And Dana and Johnny started arguing with these men. Oh. And then they said like a physical altercation started. Apparently Tina came in. He said one of the men walked Tina out the back. And as we know, the only fingerprints that were in, were, the, back. Were in the back on that handrail. Mm -hmm. Here's what I think is bad shit. The one thing yeah. in this case that's bad shit crazy. You know how they draw pictures of perpetrators, right? Right. Composite sketches based on Justin's descriptions were made of the men of the two suspects by a man named Harlan Embry. And this is right from Wikipedia. 
It says, Harlot Embry was a man with no artistic ability and no training in forensic sketches. I'm reading this quote, I'm reading this directly from Wikipedia. It was never explained why with access to the DOJ's and FBI's top forensic artists, law enforcement chose to use an amateur who sometimes volunteered to help Reno Police Department, which we know that's where that's Bo That's where Bo is from. In press releases accompanying the sketches, the suspects were described as being in their late 20s to early 30s. One stood at 5'11", 6'2", with dark blonde hair, and the other between 5'6", inches and 5'10", inches with black greased hair. Both wore gold-framed glasses. And of course, there was rumors that because of these murders, there was rumors that they were ritualistic. There was even a time where the police thought it might have been serial killers Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. You know, people who will get an, an episode yeah, in the future. Oh yeah. But how wild is that? That's crazy. A man with no... And of course, that, that part, just that ending right there, was from Wikipedia. So, you know, we got to take it a little bit with a grain of salt, but... This seems pretty reliable, and I would believe that after hearing all of right. the other bullshit about the police work in this area. I mean, it almost is too... It just, this whole thing reeks of a cover-up and of police tampering with. That was the word I'm... They are tampering with this case. It's so obvious. One of the investigators who worked this case had this to say. There are people locally who know more than they've said, and I believe we've identified some of them, and we know who they are, and we know where they are and i have every confidence that they either participated after the fact or they have first-hand information it's obviously a worthwhile pursuit there is not an expiration date on homicides and to the extent that we have surviving siblings and family members it is our fundamental obligation to them to understand who did this and why correct Thank you, someone fucking cares. Also, another note I forgot, I, I guess in 2016, a hammer was found at, <gasps> at a, in a dried up pond oh. that they believe might have been the murder hammer weapon. used in the murder. Now, like I said, one of my sources was a little wacky. It said that like Marty died in 2006 and that Bo died in 1998. There was weird things like, and I tried to decipher what was just maybe they were throwing in for sensationalism right, and whatnot, right. but I, I backed it up with other sources that I think were more grounded and everything. But yeah, that one part yeah. I wanted to read right from Wikipedia about the yeah. artist, because that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. I mean, that's so embarrassing. Like well, that's like, so embarrassing. Like what's even, then it's just a waste. It's a waste if they are not trained in forensic drawing drawing or whatever, or whatever forensic it, yeah it is then it's an art project yeah then it's an art project and we look at the drawing that we made and we say good job wow it really looks like what this boy described and then right. that's fucking it yeah it's just it just drives me crazy i for sure think that marty and Bo did this i think that marty and Bo got upset thinking about how marty's wife was gonna leave him because he was beating her it's like maybe just stop right. beating her and then she won't leave it. but that's a life hack actually for you guys if you just don't beat your wife she probably won't leave you also it should be stated that later marilyn would say that around 2 a.m she woke up and saw Bo and Marty burning an unknown item in their wood stove. Oh my God. And apparently he also, quote, hated Johnny with a passion. The 15-year-old? Yeah. I, I there, there is weird. This man is, is mentally gone, clearly. Uh, right. And it makes me wonder, did they come across Johnny and Dana while they were out hanging out? Because yeah. first of all, why was Dana planning on staying the night? Right. Why was date because and this is the other trap. Obviously, the fact these people died is a tragedy. But then you also had a kid from a different family 
who yeah. died just because he happened to he just happened it happened to be to the be wrong there. night that they hung out with friends. So it's it's also a tragedy in that sense that like oh and here's a family another family not even involved that that, that had to suffer a, a tragedy a huge and, traumatic life changing experience. It's so terrible. It, it, going on the assumption it was Bo and and Marty. Part of me wonders did they see them at like maybe they at liquored up downtown and they're driving around. And they see them hanging out and they pick them up and beat them up a little bit. Take them back to the house and barge it, you know, and do it there. Or but you know, like we said in the hypnosis thing, they said they were already there. Maybe Sue was just originally the only target. Bo and them entered. Johnny and Dana entered. Then Tina entered. So mm-hmm. Bo took care of those three. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I could see that maybe Marty and Bo get there to threaten Sue, scare her, maybe even rough her up a little bit. Dana and Johnny come home, they start fighting back, and maybe that's when things get crazy and they murder them. Absolutely. But also they like had this knife and they had this hammer with them. You know what I mean? It seems kind of like they came with the intention to cause harm. For me, I the- hate them. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. I For- mean, this is dark shit. Even though it's like literally the least evil thing he did, I think it's so telling the fact that they go to a bar and almost immediately they're kicked out because he starts an argument over the music being played. I mean, just, I hate that. Over the music being played? What are you at the bar for, asshole? Like, I get it. You want, like, what what kind of fucking ambiance are you expecting in the middle of bumfuck Northern California? Yeah, just go home. What do you think they're going to fucking play? What music, first of all, what music do you like, guy? Yeah, I I can't imagine. What, are you some fucking, yeah, what, what aficionado are you of fucking music? Yeah. What a fucking piece of shit. That's And that's the thing is it's such, what a douchebag. I hate this what guy. What a douchebag. It's like, I wonder what they were playing and I wonder what he preferred. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for the whore in Cabin 28. Oof. What a wild story. I hope that they can definitively close this case. Yeah, check out, there's there's recent stuff that's come out, like little tidbits of clues and stuff that I haven't even mentioned here. I was just kind of facing, uh, focusing on the bulk story, but there's recent stuff that's come out since this investigation has been reopened and stuff. A lot of, lot of interesting stuff. Thank you, Dylan, for doing all that work. Please, it was my pleasure. Please like, subscribe, share this podcast. Give us one of those five-star reviews. It takes you a second and you wouldn't believe how much it helps us out. It really helps the show. If you'd like to support this show and get all sorts of goodies go to patreon.com backslash creepstreetpodcast citizens of the milky way my name is dylan hackworth i'm maureen bogey and this is creep street good night and goodbye bye now Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.